0: Secrets to Real Estate Investing, episode 85.
1: Welcome to the Secrets of Real Estate Investing show, where you'll learn powerful strategies from top experts to take your investments to the next level. Here's your host and expert real estate investor, Holly McCann.
0: Hey there, welcome everybody to another exciting episode of Secrets to Real Estate Investing. And today we've got... Somebody who I'm going to say is a little bit more advanced than your average house flipper that we usually have on here is where many of us hope to graduate up to um, who are house flippers, and it's someone who's really a pro when it comes to multifamily or apartments, as we would say. So with that, welcome to the show, Anthony Chara.
1: Thanks, Holly. Appreciate you having me on.
0: Oh, thanks so much for investing your time to be with us and sharing some of your fantastic knowledge with our listeners. Well, why don't we start with you giving our listeners some background on you and how you got to where you are today and what you're doing today.
1: Okay, I can do that. So I started, my wife and I started investing way back in 1993. We took our first home that we were living in and turned it into a rental and then moved into a bigger home. And for about 10 years, from 93 to about 2003, all we knew how to do was fix and or or buying holds. We didn't even know anything about fix and flips or wholesaling or anything like that. We were just buying single family homes and condos, turning them into rentals. And then in the early 2000s, I went to, or we both went to a Robert Allen convention and then learned that you could do wholesaling, fixing and flipping, short sales, apartments, and a whole bunch of other things. Started taking a bunch of those classes, got done with each of the classes like wholesaling, went out and wholesaled a couple properties went out and did a couple fix and flips, tried to do some short sales, should have just shot myself, it would have been faster. (laughs) Um, Uh, Anyway, one of the things that we learned from the wholesaling and the fixing and flipping was that it was a lot of work, and of course the payday was nice when it came, three, four, five, six months later. But I also learned that I was fixing up the properties as if I wanted to live in them instead of somebody buying it as a rental. So I I liked it, but I didn't really fall in love with it. And then the next step was I went out and did an apartment deal. Went, got some apartment training, met up with a a partner of mine. We went out and bought a 14 unit property in Oklahoma. And then the checks just kept coming in, which was nice. Even though we had the, the, I think we had nine or 10 single family homes about that time, the checks were still coming in, but they were a lot smaller. We were, only making $100, $200, $300 a month in in cash flow, which uh, actually wasn't even cash flow because we were not setting money aside for repairs and maintenance and things that we needed to do to do later on down the road like replace the carpet and the paint and the hot water heaters but it was still nice to have that money coming in and then got into the apartments and the checks were bigger and just been going like gangbusters since then so we we bought a couple hundred units between 2004 2006 and then my partner and I started up classes and actually teaching other people how to do it because one of the things that we learned was that out of the The class that we went to and one of my mentors who taught me a little bit that there was a lot of stuff that was missing from the training a lot of detail so I'm very detail oriented when it comes to that so we started up a three-day class and then that's now morphed into a four-day class because we're constantly adding more content
0: Awesome. And listeners, in case you're wondering, yes, I've gone to this class. And yes, it's awesome. Um, I went, I don't know, a year and a half or two years ago. And it was great. Very detail oriented. Great Excel spreadsheets. Loved all of that. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. So okay. why don't you tell us about um, your first deal, if you don't mind sharing that.
1: So my first uh, apartment deal or my first single family deal or my well, first- Oh, you can do both. Deal. You
0: can tell us. Well, we can talk about all of them. Go okay. for it.
1: <laughs> okay, perfect. So, uh, so my first home I bought when I was 22. I moved from California, Southern California, where you're at. I, I grew up in Canoga Park in San Fernando Valley. <laughs> Got a promotion with my job and moved to Denver and at the age of 22 was able to afford a house in Colorado, which I couldn't afford in California because the pricing was about 50% higher for the same type of house. So that was my first single family home deal. Then my first creative deal was shortly after I went to the Robert Allen conference, I you know, I didn't know anything. I didn't have any experience. But what I did is I can follow step-by-step instructions. So when Robert Allen said, just go do this and people will actually hand you the keys to their home, uh, I said, okay. And I took a leap of faith and I went out and started doing what he said. And sure enough, one of, the, uh, one of our family friends was sitting at at lunch with a co-worker and the co-worker was talking about how, oh, poor is my son. He's His wife just packed up and left him. His house is going into foreclosure. And all of a sudden my friend who knew what I did with creative real estate calls me up and says, hey, here's what's going on. The wife has left him. He can't afford the property. He moved back in with his mom and dad. He's already missed one payment. It's about to go into foreclosure. Can you help him? Well i said what i was taught to say the answer is yes it's always yes until it's no
0: yes sure enough,
1: i said yes i can help she gave me her her friend's phone number and then i immediately hung up the phone and started go- freaking out going okay now what do i do <laughs> <clears throat> and i went <clears throat> i went and i knew i just need to go through step by step figured okay look at the home figure out the value do they really own it and go from there so sure enough i called a title company they ran and O and E for me, owners and exceptions report. Sure enough, this guy and his wife own the property. There were no other liens on it. Went and looked at the property. It, it was uh, it was amazing because it was about 200, 260000 hundred sixty thousand dollar home that had a two hundred thirty yeah two hundred home at a two hundred thirty thousand dollar mortgage on it. But um, it was immaculate. Four bedrooms, four bathrooms. It's a two story with a full finished basement. So it had basically 1,000 feet on each floor, so 3,000 square feet total. Wow. I walked in, walked around, looking at the thing. It's like, you put some furniture in here, and the thing could be a show home. <clears throat> and uh, told a matter of fact, I met his mom there because his mom, he was working, so his mom actually met me and showed me around the property I said, okay, I'm interested in moving forward. And she goes, well, here's his, here's his phone number. So I called him up and asked him what he wanted to do. And he said, I, I just want to be done with it. So I, I did what? Robert Allen taught me, and I said, "Okay, well, here's what I can do. I can take, I can just start taking over your payments." And he said, "Great, I just want to be done with it." So literally, I, by the way, still own the property today. He's still on the mortgage. Him and his, <laughs> him and his ex-wife are still on the mortgage, but oh I gosh. own the property. I'm the one of my, my wife and I are on title as uh, record as being the owners. But he literally just handed me the keys at the bank. We met at the bank for him to sign the quit claim deed. Mm-hmm. I didn't do the first deal correct, correct, because we did a quit claim deed. We didn't go through a full title cert, uh, or a title commitment and that kind of stuff, but it worked. We met him there. He signed the quit claim deed. I overnighted that to his wife in Texas. She had signed it in front of a notary, sent it back to me. I recorded it the next day. And I, that's what started my real estate creative real estate investing career, which literally them handing me the keys to a $260,000 house, which by California standards, that $260,000 house, back then when I bought it about, 12 13 years ago was uh, probably would have been about 500,000 back then or 400 nice. to 500,000 in Southern California yeah because so think nice about house. think of a 3,000 square foot home in Southern California today and how much they're going for oh, so probably that a that. million <laughs> yeah so I did that a few times and then of course started buying apartments uh, very first apartment deal was a 14-unit out of Oklahoma City. My partner and I went to his family because we had no experience doing apartments as far as actually purchasing them. We just had the theory based on what we had learned. And so we went to his family and they they financed the down payments for us. And that was our first apartment deal it was a 14-unit property just outside of Oklahoma City.
0: And did that make you money, lose you money?
1: Were you glad you did it? Yeah, we were glad we did it. That's what got us going and got our feet wet. And of course, we liked the checks coming in. We didn't make a a killing at it. It had its ups and downs as as the economy started going down, rent started dwindling and the vacancies started going up, but we did okay. So we don't own that one anymore, but we did all right. But it launched me into what I, I do now, and now I've syndicated over 1,800 units, so. Wow. They're going like gangbusters. So I've got students that are buying stuff all the time.
0: Great. That's fantastic. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your business apartment mentors and what your students are, how you have students and what you guys do together.
1: Sure. So one of the things that I learned going through this whole process was that there's only so much you can learn in some of the classes that you go to. And uh, I guess one of the biggest things I learned is that in some of the classes, it, you don't get the good stuff because they're always trying to sell you the next class, right? The really good stuff is in the next one. So this right. one, <laughs> you just get your feet wet for $97, but then the next one, which is four or 5000 that's where we're going to teach you the, what you really need to know. And, of course, I do have a really good mentor here in Colorado. His name is Ron, and Ron taught me a whole bunch of stuff, too, but he's not a hes not a trainer, and he doesn't want to sit around all day and teach me stuff, so I would pick up tidbits from him when I'd take him to lunch, and I'd ask him different questions. Some of the stuff, it would, it, I'd get the answers from the, him answering the questions, and other times he would offer things that I hadn't even thought about because you don't know what you don't know. And so my partner and I went out, we, we bought this first 14 unit, and after we bought the first 14 unit, we're sitting there thinking, okay, they didn't tell us this, they didn't tell us this, they didn't tell us <laughs> this. And we started putting together this whole process of uh, being able to teach other people and, and kind of taking all the things that we learned and stacking them on top of each other and creating slide after slide after slide for these PowerPoint presentations. And then uh, we started working locally. He had some contacts in San Jose. So we talked to a couple of real estate clubs there. He had some contacts down in Los Angeles. So we went down to Los Angeles and did some presentations and that's really where it started. Then of course I'm in Denver. So I went to the local real estate group and asked him if I could do <clears throat> 10 or 15 minutes on cap rate or 10 or 15 minutes on property management. And they liked what I had to, to say. They liked how I presented. So then they asked me if I had anything else. And I was like, Of course I do. I have an hour <laughs> presentation on apartment investing and just been going like gangbusters since then. We started that in about the middle of 2006, did our first boot camp, our first three day boot camp in August of 2006, either August or September. And now I've trained several thousand students how to buy apartment buildings. So
0: awesome. I love it. Love it, love it, love and it. You're one of them. I am I've yet to take the plunge into the multifamily world. My biggest project is only four units, but um
1: well there yeah, you go you someday. still bought a multi you bought a multifamily
0: I did so give us an example either from that first deal or from another deal of when you say you didn't know. What you didn't know. Because mm-hmm. I have found that to be so true. You don't even know what questions to ask when you're first analyzing a deal, whether it's a single family or a multifamily, because you don't know what issues there exist in the world. So you don't yeah. know what questions to ask. So give us an example of something in the apartment
1: world. Ooh, let's see. Um... <laughs> Let's see. One of the biggest things that we learned really when we first started up is we probably didn't have a good procedure for interviewing property managers. So we would go in, we'd sit down with them, we'd ask them some questions about how things were going uh, or how they would handle certain situations, how they interview their um, prospective renters, how they handle the eviction process and all that stuff. And so what we ended up finding out was that – we met more and more property managers that felt like we worked for them instead of them working for us. Oh, yeah, this is not good. This isn't the way it's supposed to work. So uh, we would go in and say, well, how do you do this? Well, this is how you do it. And you need to add us onto your insurance. And then you need to pay us for this and you need to pay us for that. It's like, okay, okay. We're sitting there going through all the numbers and get down to the bottom line. It's like, um, all right, how do we make money? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All I'm seeing is all these fees going to you and we're not getting anything, right? If you have to evict somebody, well, it's going to cost this amount. Okay, well, how do we get that money back? Because are you going to charge that to the resident? Well, no, because they're being evicted because they're not paying rent most likely, which means you're already behind on rent, but now you have to pay the management company more to kick them out and it just got to be a, a pain in the butt. So I think one of the biggest things we learned is that we need to find a property manager that realizes they work for us, we're not working for them. We It needs to be a symbiotic relationship where they make money and they're happy, but we also have to make money as well too, and they have to do what we tell them. As long as it's legal, obviously we can't just say, hey, you know, evict that person because she's a woman. Well, obviously you can't do that, right? You're violating how many different laws right? because she's a protected class as a woman. But hey, if she's not paying the rent, now you can say evict her because she's not paying the rent. That's not right. Rent. And so if we go to a, a property manager, we want them to do what we ask them to do. And so we've made some changes over the years with our property managers. If they don't give us budgets, if they spend way too much money, even though they're not supposed to, we'll fire them and bring in somebody new.
0: Right, I'm sure there's a huge amount of work that has gone in trial and error over the years for you. Just, I mean, I've had that myself, just renting single family homes. And I am my own property manager because I only have 12, you know, it's not... I don't have way more where you can't yep. manage all of the projects that you have ownership in. I mean, it just would be crazy. You need yep. someone locally and your projects are all over the country, right? They're not all in Denver, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. I only have um, four single family homes and condos here in Denver. And then all the apartments are out of state. The, um, I've got single family homes uh, and apartments in probably about 10 States, Nevada, Arizona, Texas, um, Iowa Kansas Florida I know I'm missing a couple in there Ohio <laughs> so yeah we have to have we have professional managers on all of our apartment complexes and Most if I are- Oh. Most of those are a lot bigger too, and because they're a lot bigger, we can afford to have an onsite manager and onsite maintenance staff.
0: Right, and so listeners, there is a, a level between, um, and Anthony, you can say what number because I don't remember what the number is, but there is a certain number of units that you need to get to to have onsite management versus yep. offsite management. So, what is that number usually?
1: Well, it usually starts somewhere between 60 and 80 units. Uh, the rule of thumb that I use is, is one manager and one maintenance person full-time per, for every 100 units. Hmm, okay. It's But depending on the quality of the residence and the quality of the property, that may start at 80, 70, 60. Because if you have a, a property that has a lot of issues with it or some really bad residents, you're going to want to have somebody on site almost from the get-go so they can keep an eye on everything and if people start getting out of hand you evict them you or or don't renew their lease and then you bring in some new residents that will fit better in the the community.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, define um, what, you know, when you say the quality of the tenants, what are characteristics of bad tenants for you or what are they doing or what are the problems that bad tenants cause for you?
1: Well, uh, number one, of course, is just not paying the rent. That's a bad resident, right? Because if they're not paying the rent, how do you pay the mortgage and how do you pay for your staff to repair the property and do the things that they're supposed to do? Some people don't get that, but there's other things that somebody can do to be a bad resident. We've had residents that have left food out. They're just very unclean. Now, I don't care if people leave their clothes laying around on the floor because we'll go and we'll inspect our properties on a regular basis. I try and get my managers to go in at least twice every year, usually about the six-month mark. And then when we notify the residents that their lease is up for renewal, we'll try and get back in somewhere in the 10th or the 11th month, depending on whether we have to give them 30 days or 60 days notice that we're increasing the rent or to see if they want to renew <clears throat> so as part of that process if they tell us they want to renew we're going to go back in and reinspect the property and even if they tell us they want to leave we're going to go and inspect the property to see the type of condition it's in did right they, did they put holes in the wall did they burn a hole in the carpet because they dropped a cigarette on the floor or whatever the case was we want to see what's going on and give them an idea of what they're going to have to pay for right so <clears throat> uh, one of the th- th- couple of times that we've gone in, we've had residents who literally leave cereal boxes laying on the counter open or uh, dirty dishes that still have food from the night before on the stove or how, who knows how many nights they've been sitting there. And it's just very unclean and unkept. Well, like I said, I don't care about the clothes, but the food attracts bugs. It attracts cockroaches. Yes. It attracts flies. It attracts yes. gnats. It's just very unsanitary. And we'll let people know that they have a certain amount of time to clean it up and keep it cleaned up. And if they don't, we'll evict them. And they don't seem to understand that. They think the only reason they can be evicted is if they don't pay the rent. But the bottom line is they're creating a nuisance not only for them, but potentially for the other residents. And of course, some of them freak out. They're like, you can't tell me how to live here. Well, yeah, we can. This is our property. And one of the things that they sign or that they agree to when they move in is a community standard approach that says you're going to maintain the inside of your unit. You're going to keep it clean and tidy. Um, Other things that make a bad resident, if they like playing a lot of loud music, they like having a lot of parties that are disturbing the other residents. Now, of course, if they have a party and they invite all the other residents... (laughs) <laughs> everybody's going to be happy. Right. But if, if they're bringing over people that aren't residents and they're having really loud music in the middle of the night or for a long period of time, that's going to be a bad resident. The last one that we, we actually evicted a person for is he kept, uh, he, he brought his truck up onto the lawn in front of his unit. So keep in mind, the parking lot was on the other side of his unit. He pulled it up around the parking lot onto the grass and then put it up on the little ramps that you put it on to to work on the engine. And then of course, pulled out the little drain plug and then just let all the oil go on the grass. Didn't even put a a drain under it. And a couple of the residents, fortunately, they let the manager know that there's a guy out there working on his car and we found out what was happening. It's like, well, here's your eviction notice. What? Oh my gosh it's amazing how they're surprised that they're being evicted and it's like what what are you talking about what? you just drained your oil which is not good for the environment or the grass all over the lawn you're out of here so those are some of the wacky things that can happen with bad residents yeah so I mean... say, say, so i guess i'll go one step further what's a good resident they pay on time every month they take care of the interior of the property and or the interior if you're doing or exterior for your single family homes, and they get along with their neighbors. As long as you do those three things, we'll let you stay here as long as you want. If you don't do those things, you're out of here. We'll bring in somebody new.
0: Yep. Yeah. And then as far as rent raises, do you raise rent every year on them, even if it's like a dollar or two, just to keep them in the mindset that, hey, rent goes up every year? Or do yes. you Okay.
1: Yeah, if I can convince my partners to do it, I do it personally. So personally, on all the properties that I control, yes, there will be a minimum $5 rental rate increase every year, period. I don't care what's happening in the economy. Every single year, there's going to be a rental increase. We also increase rent to whatever market rent is. So in Denver, we just found out, I I shouldn't say just found out, but um, rental rates jumped dramatically two years ago. I have a condo here locally, and the average rent was about $1,000 a month. Well, I was charging, I think I was charging my resident $9.95. It was just barely below market rate. The next year, I went in to check rent. It had gone up to $1,350 within one year. Wow. And, of course, I see that, and I go to my residence, and I say, sorry, but here's current rent is now $1,350, so we're going up to $1,345. And it's like, it's a shock, right? All of a sudden, they just went up $350 a month in rent. But what they're going to find if they go out is that that's what market rent, that's what everybody else is charging. So I'm going to raise it. I am definitely going to raise it at least a minimum of $5 per month every year. But I'm also not afraid to take it up to whatever market rate is, because market rate is market rate for a reason.
0: Yeah, and then especially with apartments where you have turnover, it's easier to rent than a single family. It makes even more sense to me. But yeah, I raise... I raise my rents every year. I'm just like thinking through. I just went through that right now. I do it January 1st, which I'm thinking may not be the nicest since it's right after the holidays. But I let them know. I give them 60 days notice. Is there, do you guys usually do 30 days, 60 days, or what do you do for that?
1: A lot of it depends on the state. So my personal preference is 60 days. And it's more for me as opposed to them because I want to know if they're moving out. I want to have maximum time to find somebody... To move into the the unit. Because a lot of times if I give them 30 days notice on, so December 30 if I tell them that on February 1st the rent's going to go up and they say no I'm not going to pay that I'm going to move out, so therefore they're telling me with their 30 days notice that they're moving. Now I've got 30 days to find somebody. Well, if I find that out on the 31st of December and I start advertising for it, there's probably a person who wants to move into my unit, but now they have to give their landlord 30 days notice. And right. if all of a sudden it's January 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and now they just found out that they want to move into my unit, they've got to give their um, their landlord 30 days notice. Well, that means they may not be able to move in until March 1st. Yes. So generally I like to do at least... Uh, about 60 days notice for them to notify me that they're moving out or me that I'm raising their rent because that way there's no surprises and it, it makes the transition easier.
0: I love it. Well, let's talk about money, how much money you can make with this and what, okay. obviously you tried a couple of other things like short, like, um, yeah, wholesaling and,
1: and fixing and flipping fixing yeah. and flipping.
0: And this was your real estate investing strategy of choice. Yep. So why don't you tell the listeners why you chose it and what kind of money you can make doing this?
1: Okay. So first off, you can't make any money in apartments. <laughs> you, you can't, you no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Because <laughs> now everybody's going to go out and start buying apartments. No, that's okay. That's fantastic because I teach people how to do that because I want people to be successful. Yes. So um, unlike single family uh, um, fix and flips and wholesale deals where you can make a lot of money, but the problem is, right, money comes in and then it drops and then the money comes in and then it drops and then money comes in and then it drops. <laughs> in order to keep the money coming in, you have to keep going and doing it again and again and again and again. And I, it's kind of interesting because in my presentations, I, I do a little sound effects. So here are the sound effects of when you're doing wholesaling and fixing and flipping. You ready? Okay. So it's blip, flip, flip. flip.
0: <laughs>
1: right. So now all of a sudden, you, if you're not doing deals, you're basically dead. So I the the properties that I did, the wholesaling and fixing and flipping, I made some good money. But again, I realized as soon as I was done, it's like, okay, now what? I, I got to go do it all over again. Yeah. So I got into apartments and again, the checks were bigger, the money kept coming in and it comes in every single month, which is nice. And of course we pay our investors every quarter. We, do, we don't pay them monthly, we pay them quarterly. <clears throat> um, and so the type of money that you can make, one of the things that I look for is in order to buy a property. Now, this is a performing property. We also buy non-performing properties, but performing properties, or when they're up and running, if we buy a non-performing one within a year and a half, two years, depending on the size of the complex, we expect it to be performing. We want to make at least $1,000 per unit per year in cash flow. Now, I know for some people that might sound like it's a really low number, especially if you've got a lot of people that are listening to your podcast that do single family homes and they're buying and holding single family homes. They'll say, oh, I'm making two, three, $400 a month in cash flow." Well, here's the difference between apartments and single family homes. Most of the time when people tell me that they're making two, three, $400 a month per unit with single family homes, they're also managing the property themselves and they're not paying the property manager. And they're not setting money aside for the things that you need to do later on, like replace the carpet and paint the interior and the exterior and put on a new roof and replace the hot water heater and the furnace and the air conditioner. Well, with apartments, you're basically forced to do that. You have uh, an acronym called Timmer. Timmer is T-I-M-M-U-R, which is Taxes, Insurance, Management, Maintenance, Utilities, and repairs slash replacements So we're already computing that money that we're setting aside for a rainy day to do those things that need to be done at some point in the future carpet and paint and things like that usually carpet <laughs> Depending on the grade of carpet and flooring, uh, and we're kind of changing that too because we're tired of changing our carpeting every three <laughs> to four years. That can be a pretty big expense. So we're, we're actually upgrading our flooring and going with things like uh, vinyl plank or laminate flooring or something like that that lasts a heck of a lot longer. It's, certainly, it's more expensive to start, but you don't have to replace it every three or four years. You could go 10 years, 20 years or, or, or longer because it holds up a lot better. Um, you know, you're going to have to paint the interiors of the units and things like that. Well, a lot of people, when they're they're telling me that they're getting two, three, four hundred dollars a month in cash flow, they're not paying a property manager because they're doing it themselves, and they're not setting that money aside for that rainy day. So eventually, at some point, the hot water heater's going to go out, and all of a sudden they got to come out of pocket twelve hundred, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars to buy a new hot water heater and have it installed. Well, now when you take that out and you start looking at some of those costs, the, the overall money that you make with, between apartments and single-family homes is very comparable. But I think the biggest difference that you're, you're asking for is how do you make money with apartments, Holly, is that you actually have more control over the value of your apartment complex than you do with your single-family homes. Your single-family homes, people will pay you what they think they're worth based on supply, demand, and emotion with apartment complexes and even other commercial properties, this this pertains to office buildings, strip malls, mobile home parks, storage facilities, hotels, you buy those because they're businesses that generate a stream of income. That's why people like me are buying them, because it's a business that generates a stream of income, as opposed to a single-family home, which is a single-family home. It's a residential piece of property. So, the, the interesting part with all these commercial properties is that if you can keep the income going up and you control what's called the NOI or the net operating income line, the value of the property can go up exponentially. As a matter of fact, one of the rules of thumb that I use and I teach my students is for every dollar you can increase the NOI, the value of your property goes up $10. So if you raise the rent, $10 $10 a month on 100 units, that's 1,000 bucks. That's $12,000 a year. Well, guess what? That uh, uh, $1,200 a year equates to a $12,000 increase in equity in the property. I'm sorry, I did that wrong. $12,000 increase, $120,000 increase in the value of the property, which means that property is now worth $120,000 more because you increase the rent $10 a month. Yep.
0: And then you can also do things. Yeah. You can do things to increase the value by decreasing expenses. Right
1: there, you go. That's another thing that will increase the NOI. We actually had um, one property where the the previous owner she had hired her college roommate to be her manager. She hired her husband to be the maintenance tech. He hired his brother to do some of the painting and things, and then they hired a brother-in-law to do the landscaping. Well, they were paying an average of two thousand dollars a month for landscaping, which will give you some context, because two thousand dollars a month doesn't mean anything unless you have the context. So there was um, a lawn area was probably maybe two hundred to three hundred um sorry, that's a little small. Uh maybe 2,000, what am I thinking here? It was probably about uh, 40 feet wide by about 80 feet long. So I guess about, yeah, about 3,200 square feet of lawn. And they had about 10 bushes and that was it. And and some trees that need to be trimmed every once in a while. And they weren't gonna trim the trees because these trees were gigantic. The, The property was in Cincinnati. So six or seven months out of the year, they're mowing the lawn and trimming the bushes and pulling out the weeds. And then the other five or six months of the year, they're shoveling snow off the sidewalks and out of the parking lot. Well, we, we took the P&L to some property managers and said, hey, is there anything on here that we can fix or any red flags or green flags or however you want to look at them? And two of the property managers came back and said, your landscaping is ridiculous. You should not be spending $2,000 a month over the course of, you know, on average, over the course of the year, even with snow. We said, well, what should we be spending? They said between 600 and 800 a month, on average. So if we went with the higher landscaper at 800, they immediately saved 1,200 dollars a month, which is 14,400 dollars a year. Times 10 at the end of the year, the value of the property went up 144,000 dollars as soon as they fired the landscaper, because awesome. the current the current people that were there were overcharging for what they were doing and the owner just didn't seem to care because it was her college roommate that was handling everything and she the properties were paid off and she was still making some pretty good money. So she wasn't all that worried about it.
0: Wow, what a great opportunity. I mean, that's something, it's a whole different set of um, skills and parameters you're looking at with multifamily versus flipping a house. I mean, for sure. Or even just long-term hold single families because you can significantly, hugely impact your value from making changes to your bottom line to that net operating income and why don't you tell our listeners what cap rate is and what cap rates are kind of around the country right now
1: sure so cap rate is short for capitalization rate and ultimately what cap rate is it's the return you would get on your property if you bought it all cash so no leverage no mortgage you bought a property for a million dollars and at the end of the year after you paid your taxes insurance management maintenance utilities um, reserves and replacements, at the end of the year, you had $100,000 left over. Your return would be 10%, right? Because $100,000 is 10% of a million. Therefore, your cap rate would be 10%. Um, think of it this way. Let's say you had a million dollars and you put it in the bank. What are banks paying these days? 0. 0.1, 0. 0.2, 0.3%. Let's say because you put a million dollars in, they're willing to pay you 1%. Well, guess what? That means your cap rate, your capitalization rate on that million dollars is 1%. Right. So the nice part about apartments is even though you can buy cap rates of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10 Once you start throwing leverage in there your returns actually Go up so on a eight cap property Where you if with no loan at all you'd make 8% when you use leverage throw leverage into the mix you might be able to make 14 15 12 18% return on your money and, and, and what you can, oh. you can sorry that's okay you can compound that right because now if you start raising the rent and controlling your expenses the value of the property goes up even more because if your NOI y-line goes up people like me are willing to pay more for that property in order to buy it
0: right because what are cap rates in general kind of throughout the country or in areas where you happen to know where
1: you've been yep. looking at deals So cap rates over most of the country have been compressing. Basically, they've been shrinking. So when cap rates shrink, the value of the property goes up exponentially, which is good if you own the property. It's bad if you're trying to buy a property. (laughs) Right. Um, So cap rates around the country, like in Southern California, if you're looking for a property, your cap rates are gonna come in in the two to three to maybe 4% range. On a really, really, really bad property, that has a lot of issues with it, maybe a lot of deferred maintenance, things like that. In Southern California, you might be able to find one in the four to five percent range. Um, other areas of the country, um, even Dallas has compressed. Dallas used to be you used to be able to go in and find properties in the nine and ten cap range. Now they're down in the six and seven percent range. Denver, same thing. Where I live, um, you used to be able to find them in the maybe eight to nine range. Now you're lucky if you can find them around five or six, maybe six and a half, sometimes seven. It just depends on the location, the condition of the property. Most areas around the country uh, have have gone down. They've, they've definitely compressed. There was so much pent up um, I don't want to say frustration, but angst, I guess, from apartment owners over the years because the markets were really, really soft for quite a long time. And then in 2009, right, because you know what happened 2005 to 2009, 2010, the markets imploded. Well, I think all of a sudden they came out of that implosion and then they just went gangbusters and there were a lot of people that had maybe moved back home or they had doubled up and they were they were roommates because they couldn't afford to live any place on their own and now the economy approved and next thing you know everybody needs an apartment everybody needs a place to live builders come out they start building like crazy and prices just went through the roof
0: Yeah. um, Very interesting. And thanks so much for sharing, you know, what you see around the country too, because obviously our listeners are all over the country and even outside of the country too. Well, tell us about um, if you can, because we're getting here near the end of our show about like how much money someone can make doing this and do they, can they do it on their own? Do you, what do you see your students doing? Are they doing these deals on their own or with a team and what kind of money or returns can they make?
1: Okay, so, <clears throat> the answer is yes. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, right, the answer is always yes. Can they do this on their own? Yes. Can they do this with uh, with other investors or group? Yes. So it depends on what your own strategy is. I've had some students who have done things on their own. Uh, these are people that have money saved up and not just couple, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they're, they have the ability, and now they have the training, because they come to the class, to go out and be able to analyze and buy properties and uh, get approved for loans and things like that. So I did have, a matter of fact, one of my students, Lila, who came to the class, um, I think it was the middle of last year, 2016, and then she went out this year. She kind of, she still has a regular job. So she kind of got sidetracked, but starting in 2017, she got more focused. She went out and started buying properties. The very first one that she did, she actually did with partners. She came to us and the numbers made sense. And she worked with her coach. I have a couple of coaches that work with me and we helped her raise, I want to say somewhere between 400000 and $500,000 to buy her first property. And that, Took a little longer for her for what she wanted to do. She thought it took a little while, but it was only, I think, six weeks for us to go through and do that kind of a raise because not everybody likes the location where the property's at. It's in Ohio, uh, but it's up closer to the Cleveland market. So there weren't a lot of people that were clamoring to buy something in Cleveland, but we were able to help her raise the money. Well, then the next two, she because she had the means of doing it, she just decided, well, now that I've got the first one under my belt, I'm just going to go do the next two on my own. So she went out and bought two more units. So I think she's close to, I want to say around 100 or 120 units on those three properties in Northern Ohio. And by the way, she lives here in Denver. So she went, she's going to where she's finding the deals. And I think she has some connections there or some family or something in that particular area as well. So it's not like she just looked at a map of the United States and threw a dart at it and said, oh, okay, I'm going to go to Cleveland. Uh, So she started looking there. And so the first one she did with partners and then the second two she decided to do on her own. So it really comes down to how much experience do you have to be able to do it on your own? If you only buy, if you've only bought two or three single family homes and now you want to buy a 50, 60, 100 unit apartment complex, even if you have the money, there are some lenders that will not loan you money because you don't have experience to show them that you can run a 50, 60, 100 unit apartment complex. So you might have to partner with someone who has that experience to get it done. If you you own one or two single family homes and now maybe you want to buy a 10 plex or a 12 plex or a six plex, banks won't have any problem with that at all. So yeah, you can so do definitely it Definitely a you track record, huh? Yeah, and and we're also talking, as I mentioned earlier, you said, well, how much money can you make? Well, it's exponential. It's not like a single-family home because if you think about your single-family home, if you fired the landscaper and or you change landscapers instead of paying two hundred dollars a month, now you're paying hundred dollars a month to a landscaping company, and they're still doing the same work. Does the value of your single-family home go up? No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. But if you can save hundred dollars a month on your apartment complex, that's six hundred well, or twelve hundred dollars a year times ten. That's if you're in a 10 cap market. Think of Southern California. If you're in a five cap market, well, the value of the property didn't go up twelve thousand, it went up twenty four thousand. And that's small peanuts, right? We're talking little itty bitty increments. Uh, it's just amazing. I'll give you one more example of a property. I've got, I partnered with one of my students, Dave. He found a 94-unit property in Kansas that was completely vacant. It was owned by a university. They were using it for student housing, but they decided to get out of the student housing business. Enrollment had dropped a little bit at the university. So all they did is board it up. Or they just shut it down, cleaned the whole thing out, and it'd sit there vacant for quite a few years. Well, David bought a property a couple blocks away. It was another 80-unit complex that he bought with a couple partners, because he didn't want to do everything on his own. He raised the money from his partners. His partners even signed on the loan. Dave didn't even sign on the loan himself. Wow. Well, while he's working on this property and visiting it, he notices this other one that's completely vacant, finds out the university owns it, gets in touch with the university, finds out what's happening, tells him he wants to buy it. Next thing you know, we buy... Th- a 94-unit property for $311,000. That
0: sounds pretty cheap.
1: That sounds... (laughs) Even for not
0: California, that sounds really cheap.
1: That's about $3,000 a door.
0: Now, did a bank lend on that or not?
1: Well, so we bought it for cash. The three hundred eleven thousand was cash. We brought in investors. We raised three hundred fifty thousand to buy it because you had not only the purchase price but the closing costs. We raised three fifty. We then used the building as collateral to go out and get a construction loan. So a local bank in Kansas gave us a one point one million dollar construction loan to go in and start rehabbing the property. Uh, We only used about eight hundred thousand of it, so we had one point one million into it. Right, three hundred thousand purchase price plus eight hundred thousand for the rehab and they when they appraised it before they gave us a construction loan the appraiser said if we do what we say we're going to do with it it'll be worth 2.45 million dollars when we're done with it so the bank said no problem here's the money and of course it was a construction loan so they didn't just say here's 1.1 million or even 800,000 they said okay here's 50,000 or 100,000 go get started we would prove to them that we were doing the work. The contractors were doing the work. Everything was getting done. We'd say, "Okay, we need another draw." They'd give us another fifty or hundred thousand dollars, and we kept doing that. It took us about a, a little over a year, it was about fourteen months, to complete the project. And then, sure enough, when it was done, the everybody's happy. The bank is that matter of fact. The bank has even come back and said, "Hey, you got any more projects? We got more money to loan." <laughs> so we're out looking for more projects in Iowa, and so you've, we've got a property that we put basically 1.1 million into it only 300,000 of it was from investors the other 800,000 came from the bank and now it's worth over two and a half million bucks so you can make a ton of money doing this and there are some banks out there that will also loan you the money uh, to buy the property in the first place so in our case we didn't do that because it, it was pretty easy for us to raise the 350,000 from investors. And then of course, like I said, we used the building as collateral in order to collateralize the $1.1 $1. $1 million construction loan. Awesome. So, there's a ton of different ways you can make money in real estate as you're finding out with all the people that you're interviewing.
0: Yes. Well, and I'd like to point out one more thing that we haven't really brought up, but you don't, my impression is if you want to learn this business, you don't have to have the cash yourself. I mean, it takes money and it takes knowledge and it takes time to look for the deals. So if you have knowledge from, you know, going to Anthony's boot camp and if you have time to look for the deals, you can find the money for the deals from investors and banks, right?
1: Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, of all the deals I've done, as I mentioned, I've done uh, syndicated over 1,800 units. I have not signed on a single bank loan. I have partners, students, whoever, you name it, that are willing to sign on the dotted line for the project in order to get a piece of the deal. As a matter of fact, to the eighteen hundred units, I probably have less than a hundred thousand dollars total out of my pocket because I found people who are, who see the vision of the project and they're willing to come in and say, okay, here's twenty-five thousand, here's fifty thousand, here's a hundred thousand dollars to invest in it. Now another podcast would be how do you do that because obviously you can't just have people just give you money there's legal things that you need to go through you need to have a what's called a private placement memorandum which is what we did in order to raise the money from those people Um, uh, and then of course you can use that money and under the guidelines of the operating agreement and the ppm use that money to buy different properties so if you have your own money and you have good credit and you have the experience it is easier and faster to go out and get projects done quickly. But if you don't, you shouldn't let that hold you back because like I said, when I first started up, my, my me and my partner first started up, we didn't have any money. Well, we had money, but we didn't have that much uh, way back in the early 2000s. And um, uh, so we didn't let it stop us though. We, we listened to the people that taught us, just like you just said, Holly, right? You don't have to have your own money. You don't have to have good credit. You don't necessarily have to have the experience You can borrow all those things from other people. And that's exactly what we did. And we're still doing that today.
0: Love it, love it, love it. Well, we need to wrap up here and we should do another show on about raising money because I think that'd be awesome. But let's, um, for our free download listeners, Anthony has generously given... reports um, that are some great beginning information that is great for you to learn about when you want to learn about investing in multifamily. So why don't you give our listeners a quick little overview and rundown of what is in those reports.
1: Okay well if I can remember the title for all of them but uh, one of them is on cap rate so something we talked about earlier is what is cap rate and how does it affect the value of the property. Uh, another one is about, um, controlling the NOI and what the, what makes up the NOI. So it talks about expenses and things like that. The Timber, right. Taxes, insurance, management, maintenance, utilities, uh, repairs and reserves. Yeah. Um, there's
0: operating so, ratio.
1: There you go. With the operating ratio is the one that talks about, um, you know, how much of the income that's coming in should be going back into the property because one of the things that you're going to find is you might find a property that looks like it's performing really well because the expenses are really low. Well, guess what? That's the exact opposite. The expenses should be higher. So if the expenses come in way too low, then it's telling me that the owner's not putting enough money back into the property to maintain it properly. And sure enough, that's- pretty much what you're going to find. So you or pay later and you're going to pay later, right? You're the one that's going to pay later. You're going to well actually you're going to pay now and later because you're going to overpay for the property now and then it's going to cost you a lot more for to take to bring the property up to speed later on down the yes. road. Yeah. So you're going to pay now and later.
0: Yes. In that respect, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so
1: yes. Yeah. I So the report on operating expenses and operating ratio talks about what is reasonable and customary. It's not, it's not be all, end all, don't, don't put yourself in a box and say, okay, this is where Anthony said it has to be. I give you guidelines on what to look for. And certainly there's going to be exceptions to that where expenses might be a little higher or a little bit lower than, than what I show in my report.
0: Okay, yeah. And then your last report is, where do you find great deals on
1: apartments? Where do so, you find, I don't know if I yeah. want to tell that one. I should, maybe yeah. I should have you delete that report.
0: Ah. <laughs> well, I know yeah. you have so much more to share than is in these um, 11 pages here, which was very generous of you. So, uh, listeners, if you want to get his reports, which I highly recommend you do, you're going to go to hardhatholly.com forward slash 85, because we're show number 85 and you can 85. get those. wait
1: a second. I thought I was show number one.
0: <laughs> and then also you can get those by texting the word hardhat. We're making it one word instead of two. Text hardhat to the number 38470. That's 38470. 470, text hard hat, and you can get this download as well as our previous ones. Now, Anthony, how do people learn more from you with you? How do they connect
1: with you? Uh, they can connect with me through uh, my website, which would be apartmentmentors.com, apartmentmentors.com. They can go there and read about me and the different classes that I have. If they live in the Denver area, one of the things that they might want to consider is I do a monthly luncheon. There's a lot of real estate groups in every part of the country, as you're well aware of Holly. Uh, but um, what I do is I have a, a luncheon that I do once a month for people that are interested in apartments and other types of commercial property because that way we're not competing with all the other uh, ones that normally do it in the evening monday night tuesday night wednesday night i think we have six clubs here in denver and i have no idea why there's there's (laughs) probably too many clubs for the number of people that are here but they all seem to be doing pretty well so um, on the website there's a on the very front page it talks about this lunch and meetup it's usually the third Tuesday of the month so they can click on there and find out about that there's also they can click on there and find out about my one-day workshops my four-day boot camps uh, one of the other things that they'll find out is all the cities that are listed, people ask me, it's like, how do you pick those cities? Is it because they're hot cities and hot markets and that's where you want to go? And as I tell them, it's like, no, I don't do any marketing. All The cities actually pick me. The real estate clubs in those cities have through the grapevine they've heard about me in the classes that i teach and they they get great feedback just like from you holly about uh, from their students their members who come back and say you know what we love the class we learned a ton of stuff and it wasn't at the constant sales pitch from the time you walk in the door until you leave about buy the next class buy this buy that buy this buy that buy this uh, it's it really is content from pretty much the first time you walk in to the end of the day so oh, yeah uh, certainly I do have other classes and I do talk about them, but I spend a very small fraction of the time talking about those other things. And if you want to learn more, we tell you what you need to do if you do want to learn more. Uh, so let's see, we do that. Um, but uh, But the cities that are on there, it's a local real estate group in that market that's invited me to come in. And present. I usually do a one to one and a half hour presentation. Then I come back on Saturday and I do a one day workshop. And then I come back anywhere from four to six weeks weeks later and do a an, uh, four day boot camp. So you can. And learn- why don't
0: you rattle off the cities real quick that you have planned in the next six to twelve months? Because I know you repeat um, those cities too. I know sure. you're doing Irvine in the late spring. Irvine,
1: California. Yep, Yep. we're doing Irvine. I think it's in May. So I'll I'll be out there probably in March or April at some of the real estate clubs. Matter of fact, I'll be in in February, I'll be in Los Angeles um, doing a presentation in February. And then I think I'm doing one down around the Irvine, Costa Mesa area in uh, either March or April. But um, I've also, as far as the boot camps and stuff like that, um, I'm going to be doing next year, I've got Nashville. Dallas, Irvine, Denver, um, South Jersey, which is just across the border from Philadelphia. Uh, And I know I'm missing quite a few. Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Cincinnati-Dayton area, I've got a boot camp coming up. you got the whole
0: country coast to coast going
1: yeah Washington DC pretty much yeah pretty much coast to coast and there's actually quite a few in there that aren't going to be happening because they the real estate clubs took too long they I've literally had a few that have called me up in the last month or so saying hey could you come out early next year it's like no my entire 2018 calendar is Booked already i have no more room so i'm already booking things in 2019 so i'm very happy about
0: wow, that. wow that's awesome i love how um generous you are with your time and i can definitely see that you really care about your students and creating win-win opportunities when they partner up with you and with each yeah. other i'm just really impressed with you and your organization so thanks allie Thank you. Thank you so much for um, sharing your very valuable time and being on here. I appreciate it. And listeners, go download his stuff. Go look him up at apartmentmentors.com. It's a great way to make money and to yep. graduate up from flipping if you're ready to do that. Or maybe skip the flippy and go straight to it. You know, go either way. There <laughs> so. you go.
1: You can, you can also get a free audio download on the website, too. If you put in your oh. name and email address, there's a free one-hour audio on, on more on actual apartments and why I love apartments. So you can, you can sign up for that too.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Go to his website and get that. Because obviously you like audio since you're listening to our podcast, guys. There you go. <laughs> well, with that, thank you so much, Anthony. I appreciate your time and listeners. Get out there, take some action, and make some profits.